Welcome to Legalese. At Legalese, we offer you a diverse and civil perspective on current issues affecting America and beyond, inviting the smartest minds from Arizona and the country to politely discuss the things that matter in a Socratic manner. Our intent is to improve discourse and information dissemination in a time of hyper-partisanship and poor critical thinking. No one will be called names. No one's beliefs will be mocked. This is our response to recent and biased news content. We are here simply to deliver balanced and informative discussions about legal matters that affect us all, from yours truly, soon-to-be lawyers and current lawyers and journalists united. We offer you all of this without convoluted legalese, which is a word for fancy lawyer talk. We hope you enjoy the show. This is Amina Keshin Kamel, and you're listening to Legal Ease. Our last episode was on COVID 19 in prison, and by popular demand, we're here to do a part two. This episode on COVID 19 and rural communities will be introduced by my guest co host today, ASU law professor Valina Beattie. So, Valina, I'll be handing this over to you now. Thank you, Amina. Hi, I'm Valina Beattie. I'm the Deputy Director of the Academy for Justice and a law professor at Arizona State University, Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. Previously, I founded and directed the West Virginia Innocence Project, and my current work and research is mainly focused on post-conviction litigation, wrongful convictions, uh, prison reform, and drug policy changes. The Academy for Justice is a criminal justice center at ASU Law School that aims to connect research with policy reform and to share expert voices. Uh, So we're delighted today on this podcast episode to hear from a faith leader and two elected county attorneys here in Arizona. They'll be discussing the impact of coronavirus on Arizona's criminal justice system, particularly in rural communities, jails, and prisons. We're fortunate to be joined today by County Attorney Bill Ring, County Attorney Kent Volkmer, and Pastor Reginald Bolton. You can find their full biographies on LegalEasePodcast.com, but we'll provide a brief introduction here. William Ring is the elected county attorney for Coconino County. Attorney Ring serves as Arizona's state representative to the National District Attorneys Association in Washington, D.C. He is president of the Arizona County Attorneys Association and a board member of the Arizona Prosecuting Attorneys Advisory Council. Kent Volkmore is the elected county attorney for Pinal County. He and attorney Ring are both running for re-election this fall 2020. Reginald Walton is senior pastor of Phillips Memorial CME Church in Phoenix. He is also the chair of the Civic Engagement Committee of the African-American Christian Clergy Coalition. Welcome to all of you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Well, we'll begin with our first question addressed to each of you. Uh, What are the steps being taken by each one of you to ensure safety in light of COVID-19? Well, I mean, it's an interesting question you ask because you know, there's, there's three primary functions for, for government that we call the police powers, and it's public health, public safety, and public welfare. Uh, it's somewhat unique to Western states and to Arizona that, as county attorneys, we actually perform uh, prosecution functions, but also civil functions for the counties that we represent. And so, you know, on the civil side of the house, Uh, We have our public health districts and our board of supervisors who have 
uh, ordinance-making authority that, that often is directed in good times towards public health, but especially in challenging times like we have now. And then as uh, the chief prosecutor in our counties, county attorneys also prosecute offenses that occur in our jurisdictions uh, that lie either all felonies uh, in our areas or all misdemeanors that occur outside of municipal uh, incorporated communities. And so, you know, we have a broad spectrum of responsibility. So the question of what is what does public safety uh, mean to us right now, it's a challenging time. It also means public health and public welfare. Uh, that's the reason why I go through that background about what the police powers are. We're in challenging times as county attorneys because we have civil clients that we advise uh, through our health districts who are adopting emergency measures to address a pandemic that we, we haven't experienced in, in a generation. Uh, at the same time, we're expected to maintain uh, public safety uh, in a pursuit of, of prosecuting the crimes that are referred to us uh, by law enforcement agencies. And sitting in the middle of that responsibility also lies uh, our jail facilities. But safety is really, you know, a, a balance of what is just and fair under the circumstances. And that's probably a little too cliche. I mean, you may, you may want to do a deeper dive into that. But really, the, 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 the pursuit here from my perspective in my jurisdiction in Northern Arizona uh, is to pursue what's just and what is fair uh, under the circumstances. That's often a balance of personal liberty interests against the, the common good. And so there's always a reciprocity of advantage that is at play in any of these tough decisions we make. You know, we're equally burdened and we're equally benefited, uh, but we all need to abide uh, by a modicum of order in order to make it through a pandemic. So I'll turn to my colleagues for their statements if they'd like. Well, I can speak for Pinal County. Um, Pinal County is still pretty rural um, with almost half a million residents, but we have the benefit of being a fairly close-knit community. We have 17 different law enforcement agencies. And one of the things that we routinely do is we meet as a law enforcement agencies. In fact, we have daily phone calls where every one of our chiefs of police, our chiefs of our fire districts and our fire departments, EMS, hospitals, everybody's on a daily phone call that's actually handled by our emergency uh, management team. And we discuss really what's going on in our community, what changes need to be made. Uh, one of the biggest things that, that everyone came together on was we need to reduce the number of people that are in our jail, um, potentially, and reduce the number of people that are coming into our courthouse on a regular basis. Because of the close proximity, because of how close they are, the likelihood of spread, spread is so high uh, that we had to just collectively sit down and figure out what we should do. Um, I can tell you that Bill and I speak frequently um, as county attorneys, and, and we've discussed this as well, but um, I think we've taken very similar approaches and that we sat down with our law enforcement community and essentially said, look, trust us, but don't submit cases unless they are posing an immediate risk to either the person themselves or our community as a whole. If it is a case that is problematic, but it is not genuine public safety, delay bringing those in. Don't, don't book them into our jail because it's adding additional potential stress to our jail, potential additional contagion. 
Um, we've also worked together with site and release. Uh, one of the things that I did when I first came in is I gave our law enforcement the ability to site and release specifically marijuana cases. It was done very well. I've had no concerns about it. Um, but that's when we're looking at the safety. We're looking at the safety of everyone. Bill's absolutely right. There's a, a million different ways that we can go with this conversation. Um, but when I asked, when I heard the question, I'm really thinking about what we're doing specifically in the law, law enforcement capacity as the prosecutor. And uh, we've seen, just, just to give you a rough estimate, we've seen a reduction of about 20% of cases being submitted to us. And most of those tend to be uh, simple drug possession cases or repetitive shoplifting, those type of cases where they may be a nuisance crime, they're still um, against the law uh, as currently constituted, but we don't have concerns that it's placing the public at risk. In fact, we have concerns that if we were to bring every one of those people and book them into jail, that might actually create a greater risk than allowing them to remain in the community would. All right. So one of the things that uh, and we appreciate the candidness of the county attorneys, one of the things that the African-American Christian Clergy Coalition, of which I serve as the civic engagement chairperson, one of the things which we have uh, done in to combat this disease, first and foremost, we wrote a letter to Governor Ducey asking him to, one, continue to ask for shelter in place or stay at home. Uh, if you will, in order to stop the spread of this disease. Secondly, as it pertains to law enforcement, we have um, asked that law enforcement in particular here in Maricopa County uh, with the county attorney and with the sheriff's department, take a look at releasing uh, low level offenders and those who are not posing a serious risk or who have served the majority of their time uh, in particular, those who are vulnerable to this, this disease, those who have pre-existing pre conditions, those who are older, and those who have uh, perhaps a weakened or compromised immune system. Those are some of the steps that we have taken. And so uh, we applaud the efforts of the county attorneys as they look at uh, reducing the impact or the contact that people have with the uh, Justice Department or with the uh, courts, as it were. And so we're looking at ways in which we can try to slow the spread of this disease that really impact the least of these and those who are marginalized. Another thing that we are doing is that there are several churches who are feeding, who are uh, trying to offer services to those who are underserved, the unhoused, which we uh, typically know, know as homeless, and those who are in transition. And so those are some of the steps that we are looking at and trying to take uh, in order to swell, in order to quelch or to uh, calm the spread of this disease. Well said. Thank you, uh, all of you, for taking us through that. And that takes me to our next question for each of you, uh, but specifically for for Will here. It was recently reported from Arizona about how COVID nineteen is affecting the Navajo Nation, which reportedly has a higher infection rate than the rest of Arizona but that may be because they have some of the best testing nationally. So can you please shed some light on the situation for us and our audiences, if you have any light to shed, that is. <laughs> well, it, it's very important uh, question. It's a, and it'll be a curiosity to your listeners. You have to take the date into consideration. Today is April the 20th of 2020. So on today's date, I got some numbers for you and statistics. And in particular, with regard to uh, the Navajo Nation uh, and our citizens who are up on Navajo, uh, there are 45 reported deaths today 
from uh, the Navajo Nation. That's not just Coconino County, and it doesn't include Coconino County. It's the boundaries of the nation, which covers three states. And, and for your, your uh, audience, this, the Navajo Nation is the largest Native American reservation in the United States of America. It has well over 200,000 individuals, but their infection rate is one of the highest in the nation also. Uh, this morning, there were 1,508, 1,508 uh, reported cases with 45 uh, fatalities. And so our county has uh, 217 individuals who are Navajo uh, who have tested positive uh, for the infection. And I really don't have information for you on whether we're, we're reporting more cases from Navajo because their testing facilities uh, are up to speed. I, I don't know that that's true. I don't know that it's not true. It would surprise me if it were true. There, there is some distinction in it that makes a difference in terms of the delivery of health care in northern Arizona. In the Indian Health Service, we refer to it as IHS, uh, is, is a competent core of dedicated individuals who are serving health needs in Navajo. But there's very challenging circumstances there as well. Poverty is, is a, 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 one of the greatest challenges. The distance between services uh, is one of the other great challenges. And the third great challenge there is you know, main, keeping their health, their core healthcare workers healthy. And what we hear reports of is that in the first early wave of the infection, uh, before we knew there was, uh, we needed to take extraordinary measures with PPE, personal protective equipment, uh, that their healthcare workers were exposed early to the virus. Uh, and so you start to see, you know, your first responders becoming uh, subject to the illness and then unable to respond to the next wave of patients. And so the challenges there are really unique and, and very difficult. Um, it's been a painful experience for, for our friends on the, the Navajo Nation. Uh, the nation is responding as best they can. Uh, President Nez uh, has taken every responsible act that he can uh, to, in fact, impose curfews uh, on the weekends, the 57-hour curfew. Uh, this past weekend was the second weekend that that was instituted. And then, of course, you see conduct that, so, that mostly conforms, but sometimes violates curfew. So enforcement becomes a, a bit of a question. Uh, but by and large, uh, it's been successful trying to beat down what we call the curve. Uh, and then the last thing I would say, the dangerous thing about the curve is anytime you try to measure the peak of the curve, you've got to realize that half the, pay, half the cases are still ahead of you. You know, that's the definition of the peak of the curve. You, know, you come up statistically knowing where that top crescendo is. But what it means is that there's still another 50% of the cases in the model that lie in front of you, people who haven't been infected, who will be and, and will be in danger. So they have not, to my knowledge, hit a peak yet on April the 20th. I don't think Arizona has either, uh, which makes it challenging to decide you know, what executive orders are going to follow next. The last thing I would say about the question with concern with regard to the Navajo Nation is it does reflect back on the Coconino County justice system. And let me put it in these, these simple terms. You know, the courthouse uh, in Flagstaff is probably the largest storefront of criminal justice that we have 
in this northern part of Arizona. It attracts a lot of individuals. 20% of the population, about 27,000, are Navajo in Coconino County. And so, for instance, when we call a jury to try a case, uh, we get a really solid statistical sample of Navajo individuals who proportionately represent their community in our jury system, uh, which means we're bringing in people who have uh, one of the hottest exposure rates in the state and country into our court system. And so we're very cautious uh, and precautious uh, about how we restart our justice system. Um, presently, there's ad administrative orders from our courts which have delayed uh, the convening of a jury. Now, when we go back to reconvening for jury trials, it may be true that Coconino County has to have a later start because we've got to cool down the hotspots on the Navajo Nation uh, that also are representative samples of our jury pools. And so we've got a real challenge you know, between you know, administering criminal justice and preserving the public health at the same time. It's a challenging scenario. Uh, County Attorney Ring, uh, on this same topic, uh, we saw in the news last week that there was a man from Page who was arrested for making online threats of violence against members of the Navajo Nation. Uh, and he was inaccurately saying that all members are infected with the coronavirus and advocating this, this violence against them. Have you seen an uptick in violence or threats of violence against members of the Navajo Nation during this pandemic? You know, that's a wonderful question, and, and it's a very timely question. Um, when we think, when I frame that question, I think in terms of hate crime. You know, how, do we see a particular constituent singled out uh, and then having violence targeted towards them? Uh, but I've got to tell you, I've got two uh, basic comments to make with regard to the question. The first is, uh, to assuage people's concerns, this is the only incident I am aware of of a hate-related crime uh, occurring in Coconino County in the last year. Uh, but realize we're a rural county. We're 147,000. We're the second largest county in the United States of America. Nonetheless, we do from time to time uh, experience you know, hate-related crimes that engender a prosecution. The last event was a year ago in April. Uh, 2019, uh, when a synagogue was uh, attacked and damaged, uh, criminally damaged, um, in a way that represented anti-Semitism. In this particular event, however, keep in mind, in this particular event, the, the medium, you know, but let, let's take the synagogue case. In the synagogue case, it was spray paint on a structure. You know, you had to be there to see it and experience it. It was on a single structure. That was it, a piece of property. In this case, the hate message went out through social media uh, on Facebook. And so it has a way of propagating through uh, a community very, very quickly. And every time that message is, is downloaded or read, uh, it creates an injury to the person who experiences that moment of hate. Uh, and so qualitatively, these are different types of crimes. You know, one to a physical structure, one out in social media. And so I'm sure the exposure to this act of hate uh, has many, many, many individuals who you might think of as victims uh, experiencing that moment. Uh, 
uh, and having to live it. And then as it gets shared, it gets lived again. Uh, so this is a different kind of quality experience. The, the last thing for your, your viewers to, to consider is that in Arizona, we do not have a separate lane for something called the hate crime. What we have is aggravators at sentencing, post-conviction, aggravators at sentencing, which allow a judge to consider what weight to give the fact that the crime was motivated by an act of hate. So that's, a, that's something that's a distinction, but it makes a big difference when you think about an event like this. We have, for instance, in the synagogue example, that was a crime of criminal damage, right? It was, it was graffiti on a building. You can obtain a conviction for the criminal damage that that represents, and then only at sentencing do you consider that, that the sentence should be enhanced by hate. That is the distinction. The difference here is we can't just simply go in and prosecute uh, a hate crime. Now, one of the things that, that we may pursue as a result of this particular instance, instance and the way it propagates through a community is that we'll revisit the legislature in the, in the uh, fall-winter session with a bill that will uh, consider making hate crime its own lane and its own offense. Uh, so we, that we don't have to get past conviction to start getting a result as an aggravator. We're actually prosecuting a crime of hate. Now, where that starts to get burdened is when we think about the, the civil right of free speech, uh, which, by the way, is not absolute. Uh, and that will be the balancing test that we'll ask the legislature to make as a matter of public policy. Um, but that event is very unfortunate. We intend to prosecute it vigorously if the facts warrant our reasonable belief that we can obtain a conviction at trial, we will go to trial and seek that conviction. Thank you. I believe our next question is for County Attorney Bulkmore. And County Attorney Bulkmore, your office, and I know also County Attorney Ring's office, uh, both have successful diversion programs. Uh, and you were discussing uh, making uh, more cases into site and release, trying to decrease the number of people in the jails right now. Have you also made more cases eligible for a diversion during the pandemic? Or have you seen challenges to diverting people from jails and prison sentences? So I only have bad news. Um, in anticipation <laughs> of that question, I actually pulled the numbers. And I, I guess I have to give just a little bit of context. So diversion is for those people that we identify as, as not being dangerous, but maybe made a bad decision, made a, a stupid choice, and we don't think that they should effectively have, you know, a scarlet letter on their chest for the rest of their life. So we design a plan for them. And if they successfully complete the consequences, all the charges are dismissed in their entirety. Because that's the way that we get to diversion, typically those people that we offer diversion to are not uh, dangerous. They don't present as being a danger to our community. So as I explained earlier, we met with all our law enforcement community and we said, look, don't submit those cases to us right now. Do what's called a long form. And a long form is literally just a handwritten, they submit it to us, and then we kind of get to it when we get to it. So typically we have at least 50, sometimes as many as 60 to 75 people in any given month that we place on diversion in our county. Uh, in the month of April thus far, we've only had two. It's not because we're making it more difficult or stringent. It's just the cases that we're earmarking. Because again, most of these are going to be your sort of petty crimes. They're going to be drug crimes. They're going to be possession crimes. Those type of offenses where we don't want them coming into the courthouse. 
because if they come into the courthouse, they have to meet with their attorney. They have to come into the courthouse. Right now, we don't have the ability to do video conferencing for our felony superior court cases. Um, so we've made the conscious decision to not bring them there. What I think we're going to see, though, is probably come uh, June or whenever we really start reopening and the courts get back to some semblance of normality, I think we're going to see a ton of people in diversion. Um, so we have been selectively and systematically uh, increasing who's sort of eligible for diversion. Um, instead of having it a very narrow, we kind of say, hey, anybody that, that really you're not a danger, you made a dumb decision, if you can pitch the case to us, we'll consider it. So there are cases that we immediately flag and we have parameters. As soon as we see it, we flag and say, yeah, this is probably diversion. But we also give defense counsel the ability to come forward and say, hey, I know this is what they're charged with, but here's the history. Here's how they got to this point. This is more information about them. Is it diversion eligible? I mean, we found uh, because we've made uh, that sort of change in philosophy, we've had a lot more people as of recent coming in, but come really April 1st or the very end of um, March, everything came to a screeching halt because those are just the cases that aren't getting submitted. That makes sense. Thanks for explaining that. And I know in Pinal County, there are a number of state prisons, um, including Iman and Florence state prisons, both of which have inmates who have tested positive for COVID-19, according to the Arizona Department of Corrections. I think there was also an additional facility that tested positive in Pinal County yesterday. Pastor Walton, you made a moving call as you noted, for the governor to release endangered people from prison for Easter in particular. Uh, and you noted that more than 12% of people in Arizona prisons are over the age of 55. Uh, Pastor Walton, has there been any movement on releasing people, and particularly endangered people, from our state prisons? Thank you so very much for the question. Unfortunately, we have not seen any movement from Governor Ducey nor the Department of Corrections. And it is sad, uh, just saw a report today uh, that a prison in Ohio has uh, reached 73% of the inmates that are housed there have now tested positive for COVID-19 or the novel coronavirus. And so what you're seeing is in prisons, because of the close proximity, the, and, and regardless of the measures uh, that are being taken at this point, there is no personal protective equipment being given to inmates. There is no freedom to be six feet from one another because most, most of the cells are eight by eight. And so you have this close proximity and uh, what we are looking at, we're looking at, unfortunately, a ticking time bomb of uh, exposure and potentially cases that lead to people contracting this disease. And what we're saying is that people have been sentenced for a number of years. Uh, yes, Arizona does have the death penalty, but someone who was convicted of shoplifting or someone who has a uh, felony drug offense uh, in the United States, that is not equal to a death sentence. However, with the novel coronavirus, Unfortunately, some people who contract it have the possibility of uh, ultimately death. And so what we're saying is, look, we need action. We need uh, firm steps to be taken so that these people might be able to be released. And what we're asking for is not for violent criminals to be released. What we're asking for is are those people who are uh, up in age, those people who are uh, have have met the, the majority of their sentence and those people who are low level offenders and like uh, the county attorney from 
uh, Pinal County said, uh, those who really will not pose a danger to our society, but maybe made a bad choice. We're asking for compassion. We're asking for uh, rationale. And we're asking for really justice to be served. Thank you for that, Pastor Walton. And we understand that the African-American Christian Clergy Coalition has been very active in this cause. Are churches prepared to assist incarcerated people who are released with their re-entry during this pandemic? So one of the things that I am uh, grateful for, uh, let me give a little background. The African-American Christian Clergy Coalition is a consortium of over 100 uh, historically African-American churches in this uh, in Maricopa County primarily look at our charter and our mandate. We're about Jesus and justice, really, when it comes down to it. And so uh, one of the things that we do have, we have the civic engagement pillar of which I chair. We have uh, faith and formation. We have clergy enrichment. But then we have what's called the criminal justice, justice reform piece. Um, and Dr. Jana Scott is doing marvelous work in helping with uh, reentry efforts. Um, we've held re-entry trainings. We're trying to link with uh, job training. And so, yes, we are prepared to help people as they re-enter society. Uh, we've been very adamant down at the Capitol trying to get criminal justice reform. We're trying to get the state to ban the box in employment, in employment applications. And so, yes, we are uh, ready, willing, and able to help people as they come back and re-enter society, not just with talk, but with action. Thank you, Pastor Walton. That sounds wonderful. And it's great to hear wonderful news like that. Uh, following up on that, um, Pastor Walton, could you please discuss why COVID-19 is affecting communities of color more than others? Um, because we're, we're going to have listeners out there who will believe that it's because these individuals are people of color, uh, not because of environment, access to health care, and other causes. So I wonder if you could discuss that a bit. So one of the things that is causing the virus to uh, take hold in uh, communities of color, particularly, particularly the African-American community, is that we have to take a look at the way in which uh, our communities have been underserved. If you really look at uh, South Phoenix, uh, let's go a zip code 85041, zip code 85040, uh, 85040, uh, those three zip codes, if you really look at it, there's no health care. And so when you have, uh, we call it a hospital desert, just like there's food deserts. And so when you do not have access to health care, equitable access to health care, when you do not have our communities being served, and when you have a uh, distrust of uh, the health care system, uh, which goes back for uh, a long time. Let's look at the um, Tuskegee experiment. Um, and so you have this distrust, you have our health systems that are not in our communities, and then you have a cultural, a cultural bias toward what the government might say. And so you have some that are, yes, practicing social distancing, but then you have some who are saying, well, I don't understand it. I'm not trusting the news source. I'm not trusting the government to tell me what's going on. 
And so you have all of this that's creating a microcosm or excuse me, creating a storm, a perfect storm, if you will. And um, it is ravaging our community. What we are also seeing is the lack of testing. We are also seeing there, there are several factors that go into place. And you mentioned some of them, uh, but I would really go into the lack of health care, the lack of access, the lack of testing and a mistrust of government are all playing a part in why uh, this disease is taking root in um, in the black community, especially. Uh, but what we are trying to do is we're trying to combat misinformation. We're trying to help people to know and understand, hey, listen, stay home as much as possible. If you are out, uh, please use your mask. And not only that, when you come back in, remove your mask, remove anything that may have been contaminated, wash your hands and try your best to avoid crowds. Um, it's interesting that a call to open the uh, reopen the economy is being made at a point when we're finding that African-Americans or black people are uh, being uh, are being uh, ravaged by this disease and what it lets uh, and what on the surface it looks like some people are putting money over uh, or profits over people. And so in our community, we are we are combating the disease as best we can. But one of the one of the real one of the real issues that has been exposed is the um, oversight of communities that are not only uh, African-American, but have been historically lower income. Thank you, Pastor Walton, for shedding light on that. For the following question, I'll direct it at Will and Kent, but feel free to also jump in on this one too, as well, Pastor Walton. So there is a call to prosecutors that they should decline to start new prosecutions for low-level offenses not implicating public safety. And an example of this is Baltimore State's attorney, Marilyn Mosby, who announced that in an effort to slow the spread of COVID-19 in jails, her office would dismiss pending charges against anyone arrested for drug possession, prostitution, trespassing, minor traffic offenses, other examples like this as well across the nation. And I know you've both touched on some things that are being done, uh, wonderful things that are being done, but is there anything similarly being done here in Arizona? And if not, are there discussions of steps toward this? Well, let me, let me uh, take a shot at this and then uh, Kent, you can join in. Um, Kent and I work together quite often in, t in discussing uh, policy for the state of Arizona and for our jurisdictions. You know, there's a, a slight difference in what you, how you frame the question with reference to the Baltimore uh, prosecutor and, and how we address it here. Uh, in, in her particular instance, she was dismissing cases uh, that had already been, where the arrest had already been made. Uh, what we're often looking at in, in our response to the pandemic is trying to reduce our jail population by relying less on arrest and booking and more on site and release. Uh, and this comes about as a result of, you know, law enforcement gaining confidence that if they stop, detain, and cite an individual for an offense that they see committed uh, in their presence or reported to them by witnesses or victims that the defendant poses no particular risk to the community 
And there's some confidence that he'll appear for his court dates when they're set. Oftentimes, uh, doubt about either of those two prongs is what leads a law enforcement officer to, to make an arrest uh, and, and seek detention, oversight, and release. But in our instance, we've seen uh, law enforcement gain confidence in a site and release policy. So they will start a prosecution, but they'll start it by citing the individual uh, and then referring the case to our office for further consideration and prosecution. They don't need to rely upon the jail to assure uh, the appearance of the individual at their court date. They've gained confidence in the field uh, that, that this person can be uh, situation can be addressed by less restrictive means. That's had a positive lasting effect upon our jail populations for the reason that the pastor described. You know, we're trying to reduce the risk of, of health issues that are related to compulsory cohabitation. If you want to think about what a jail is, it's a compulsory setting of cohabitation. We try to reduce that reliance. We've had a 40% reduction in our populations uh, as a result of that. The second thing that happens, and I think of this as natural attrition, uh, but in, in checking with our sheriff's department today, you know, the average duration of stay in jail in our county uh, for a misdemeanor is seven days. And the average duration of stay for a felony offense is 14 days before either the person finds a way to bond out or has an initial appearance and the court determines that the conditions of uh, to assure public safety and appearance can be out in the community somewhere. So at the same time that we're citing and releasing and relying less on detention, we're also seeing that the natural pattern of uh, duration of stay, which is a short duration of stay, those two things together are reducing the populations. And this may be uh, our aha moment. Uh, as a result of, of the, um, this unfortunate pandemic, is that people actually behave themselves better than we think they may. Uh, and we'll test that. That's a hypothesis, right? Uh, you know, will people behave themselves and will people appear uh, when they're summoned to appear? Uh, and we'll find out. It's a great experiment. But it may be one of those happy occurrences that we discover we have greater confidence in our citizens uh, to perform the duties ex that's expected of them while we seek justice for victims and the safety of the community. So um, that's how I would answer your question. Thank you for the question. I would say that dismissal is um, not being pushed. I've not heard really those requests. Uh, what I would say is you need to sort of divide the cases into sort of three different pots, if you will. Those that are not been charged, um, those that have been charged and are in custody and those that have been charged that are out of custody. So those that have been charged and are out of custody, um, we're just kicking all of those between 60 and 90 days. Um, as long as they have contact with their defense counsel, uh, the judges, as well as my office, the public defender, jail, everybody's kind of met and said, look, we need to just kick cases essentially down the road. Um, that way they are not being forced to come into court. If they're in custody, however, we have been requested um, politely to make sort of the best offer that we can instead of going through the kind of rigmarole where we're going back and forth and you make a negotiation and we go back and forth instead of to sit down, have a realistic assessment, say this is the best offer that we're going to make in an attempt to resolve cases. The final sort of pot are those that have not yet been charged. We just simply delay the charging.
Uh, it's not a dismissal. Um, my concern with an outright dismissal is you have an equity, an equity issue. Those that committed an offense six months ago now have felony convictions or on probation, et cetera. And if you happen to either delay your case long enough or just charges were submitted, you, you somehow get a pass. I just don't believe that that's fair. I don't think that's the equitable administration of justice. Um, so I would not say that at least our office has done any consideration of outright dismissing and foregoing. We've just decided to delay and to handle each case um, as the circumstances dictate. Thank you both for educating us on this matter. Uh, and for the site and release, I'm sure uh, you're all very well aware that even just being able to release someone from a three-day stay in jail can have huge ramifications on someone being able to keep their job, uh, being able to take care of their kids. Uh, so, you know, I agree with uh, County Attorney Ring and the, the possibility of this experiment, and, and we'll see, because there, there are a lot of benefits to people being able to um, be on their own recognizance to come back to, to court if possible. Uh, and County Attorneys Ring and Volkmore, your jurisdictions both cover rural areas, um, as well as, you know, more urban area like Flagstaff. Uh, but what are some criminal justice issues particular to rural communities that are dealing with COVID-19? Well, I'm, I'm happy to lead on uh, again, unless, you know, Kent, if you would like to, to step in and take this one. But let me let me go ahead and just say, look, you know, when we look at, I, I need to describe for your listeners our county for a moment. Um, I, I mentioned it before, but I'll say it again because it's in the context of your question. We're 147, 147,000 people in 18,680 square miles. Um, and most of our density occurs around the city of Flagstaff. Its population in the municipal limits and the donut that's around uh, the city is about 90,000. Uh, that means most of the rest of the county, uh, people live in very low density. Um, and the other characteristic of our Flagstaff community is that it's a university community. The final characteristic of the county as a whole is that while we're 147,000, uh, unbelievably, we actually support a, a, a tourist economy of 20 million visitors in a year. Uh, six of them are at the Grand, six million at the Grand Canyon, five million in Page, five million in Sedona, and the rest is dispersed throughout the, the high country in the summertime or skiing in the wintertime at uh, Snowball, which is in our jurisdiction as well. So, you know, we're 147,000 people living at generally low density, supporting a tourist economy of 20 million individuals. What that means for us, and I'm getting to your question now, is that most oftentimes, the type of employment that we have for residents, families who stay, is in the leisure and hospitality industry. And that industry is notorious for paying minimum wage or slightly above minimum wage. So when you talk about the drivers of criminal offense, offenses in our community, it's really insecurities uh, that are the drivers of those offenses. It's like housing insecurity, food insecurity, healthcare insecurity, uh, employment insecurity, transportation insecurity, uh, insecurity about personal safety. Um, and those often are, you know, most often the drivers of the types of offenses that we see. Uh, some, in some fields, you know, you think of these as the ACEs, uh, those types of insecurities that people suffer. 
so while you know we're we're trying to make it as a community, we're not much above the poverty line, and our average median income is below the nation's average and below Arizona's average. So we have a tendency to lag behind uh, in our economic indicators, which means our crimes are are not surprisingly burglary, trespass, uh, theft. Uh, and in the COVID crisis, we've seen an increase in burglary and theft because people are unemployed. We've got a, because of the, the, the dependency we have on leisure and tourism, which is the hardest hit uh, of the sectors uh, in our economy right now, we're seeing crimes of opportunity that are surrounding, you know, theft and burglary of property. Um, and not too surprising when you put it in the context of who we are. The, the, the second thing that we've seen, and this is, this is unusual, but when you think about it, 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 it'll, it'll make sense to you. We see domestic violence. I mean, people are now homebound, uh, stay in place, uh, in close proximity to each other. Uh, we don't have a lot of large houses. We have apartments and people crowded in smaller spaces. So we see domestic violence. But what's curious about it is we've seen an uptick in domestic violence that occurs during the day, uh, as opposed to you know the typical swing that we see when people, primarily men, are away at work and they come home at five and, and uh, abuse substances like alcohol and then the violence follows. Uh, our calls for domestic domestic violence are occurring now more in the middle of the day. Um, and, and we're trying to get to the bottom of that. From, from an epidemiological standpoint, it'll be really curious to see what cofactors are occurring that lead to, to um, afternoon domestic violence. Uh, but that's the pattern that we're seeing. Um, and we'll lag behind as well in an economic recovery because of the sector uh, that we operate in. And so these types of, this type of behavior related to all those insecurities I described will probably stay with us longer than the state. Uh, as the state recovery occurs, we're going to lag behind and we'll be experiencing this for a longer duration of time. We've actually seen a, a decline in crime overall. So our sheriff's office uh, covers about 50% of our population. Again, we're just under half a million people, but we're um, a footprint size of the state of Connecticut. Um, and we have lots of various pockets, but all of our unincorporated municipalities make up about half of our residents and county residents make up the other half. Uh, in communication with our sheriff, they're seeing between a 25 and a 35% reduction in calls from service on a daily basis. Um, and that's consistent over about the last five and a half or six weeks that it has been consistently down over year over year comparisons. And that doesn't even take into consideration the fact that we grow by three or 4% each year with our population. Our county, and it's historically and it's still the case now is uh, predominantly crime surrounding substance abuse use uh, and abuse issues. You can normally tie between 80 and 85% of all crimes that occur in our community to either possession, transportation, sale, or the commission of offense while under the influence of drugs or in furtherance of trying to get drugs to satisfy their habit. Meth is usually the biggest one and it's a full 40% of our all criminal felony charges are drug related. Um, and we typically do not charge marijuana as felonies or that number would be even higher. Uh, I just looked and over the last 30 days, our drug related crimes are down about 25% total of the total amount submitted. So we're seeing a, a very um, significant decrease in the number of 
uh, drug-related offenses that are actually coming forward, which is a good thing. Um, and, and again, when we're looking for sort of the little hidden blessings, that might be one of those uh, things that we find here. The other issue that I would bring up, and, and Bill alluded to it, is there is a significant increase in DV. We don't see the exact same that is during the day and not at night, but um, our community is primarily a, a commuter community. Um, although we're fairly large, the majority of our employees either work in Maricopa County or they work to the south of us in Pima County and in Tucson. So traditionally, they're gone all day. And now we've got families together that normally would only see each other two or perhaps three hours a day. And we are seeing a, a significant uptick in domestic violence. Um, but when you couple that with a overall significant reduction in the number of calls, it even it makes it seem like it's an even bigger problem than it actually is. And the other problem that we have is we don't have a lot of services. So we have these situations. We really don't want to bring these people uh, into our jail situations, but we don't have any other place for them to go. And we don't want them to go home. So we're we're really kind of spinning our wheels. And I know that there's been frustration with our law enforcement saying, what do you want us to do? If you don't want us to book them into our jail, we can't leave them in the house. We don't have homeless shelters. We don't have empty rooms where we can send people. What do you want us to do? Uh, and, and we know that essentially people are going to a friend's house sort of in violation of the EO, and then they're coming back into their home and they're a frequent visitor. In fact, I was just emailing with one of our judges earlier today saying, man, we've got to come up with a solution. We've got to do something. I keep seeing these same people two or three times. He's like, I'm going to have to book them into our jail and I'm going to have to keep them there because they are posing a danger to themselves and to the other people in their house. So that's one of the frustrations that, that we're seeing specifically around the DV. We just don't have any place to put people that aren't normally being housed together, at least for this long of a stretch. Right. And I wonder, um, County Attorney Ring, uh, I mean, how has your office been able to provide victim services to assist victims um, sheltering in place? Well, you know, that's a good question. And uh, of the 15 counties that are in Arizona, our county has taken a different approach to innovation around victim services. Uh, we do not ourselves have a victim services unit housed in the county attorney's office. Uh, we actually found a nonprofit provider in the community who skilled up and, and worked up to a level of, of service as our victim service providers. Uh, not surprisingly, they're called victim witness services. That's who they are. And uh, we've had that relationship with them for over 15 years. They're challenged because they've got to keep so social separation uh, in their workplace, and their workplace is, is compressed. Uh, so they're, they're meeting the challenges uh, with, with, I don't want to overstate it, they're, they're, they're challenged by it. So they're meeting their challenges with a level of success uh, that's acceptable. But they've got uh, a dilemma, as, as perhaps the question points out, uh, and Kent pointed out in his illustrations where, you know, you, you can't just have a law enforcement response to DV, separate the parties, uh, for a 30-second break between rounds, and then they go back at it again. And, you know, at some point, you've got to break that cycle. And the way we've traditionally broken that cycle is with arrest and booking. But arrest and booking puts an individual uh, into that uh, compulsory cohabitation where, you know, there's a degree of risk from other factors, uh, such as COVID-19. Um, and so I, I, I don't have a silver bullet for this to how to solve that problem. 
I think the question is a very good question, and we're just alert to uh, the circumstances that we have. You know, we, we don't have a lot of tools uh, in, in this area. We've got one jail, not two jails. Uh, we don't have uh, a lot of options and alternatives. The law enforcement would be begging for an alternative that would, would bring peace and tranquility to a family in a crisis. But separation is, you know, the, the simplest, easiest one to achieve, except we've got uh, a different kind of emergency upon us that makes it hard. Um, no good answers. No good answers yet, but definitely great discussion and great feedback from all of you today. I'm not sure about you, Valina, but I, I definitely feel more educated on the matter. And that leads us to our last question. I'll be directing my last question to Pastor Walton and then also opening the real last question to all of you. So what are some of the obstacles you've been faced with as you continue to be active in this cause, Pastor Walton? And what are some moments of hope you've seen? And then, last but not least to all of you, what are next steps officials and organizers can take to further educate people on these issues? Thank you so very much for the question. Uh, some of the obstacles that we have seen, um, we're seeing, well, as a pastor, it is hard not to be able to be among the people. Uh, that for me has been the biggest obstacle obstacle. And so uh, it's giving me opportunities to find new ways of ministry, uh, to find new ways to uh, impact people's lives in a positive fashion. And so one of the um, one of the things that has been a beacon of hope for us is that we're seeing uh, new ways, uh, new innovative ways to impact people to stay in touch. Uh, one of the things that I am uh, grateful for is that we're seeing people who have not been involved in justice work or in touching the lives of people in a positive manner. We're starting to see people volunteer that have never volunteered before. We're starting to see people feed the homeless or feed the less fortunate that have never done those kinds of things before. And so there are beacons of hope uh, if we look around. And uh, I am thankful for not only the African-American Christian Clergy Coalition, but uh, people of all faiths of, or of no faith at all that are getting involved and helping each other out. I'm seeing people who are uh, able to find resources such as toilet paper, uh, their Facebook groups to help people find supplies. And so these are the beacons of hope that are, we're looking for and uh, we're hoping that continue in our cause. Last thing before I go, thank you so very much for having me today. And I, I wanna pivot off of, of what the pastor's comments were, not only now, but. Uh, earlier in the conversation, because there's many things he said that spoke truth. Um, you know, this particular disease is a disease of the middle class and the poor uh, because of the way that it's conveyed. Uh, it, it's conveyed, you know, orally through, you know, uh, breath and, and exposure. Uh, that's different than the way other diseases have been conveyed in history. Uh, and because, it because people of middle class and poorer means tend to live at higher densities, you know, thinking in apartments and townhomes and condominiums or even on the street in clusters and in, in, in shelter facilities, uh, the communication of this disease happens much more quickly uh, than among, let's say, the wealthy. Uh, the wealthy have lived in social separation for centuries. 
they live in larger single-family houses. They live on estate-sized lots. They sometimes live behind gates. They live in suburbs, not urban areas. And, and so I'm not saying that we don't have a, com- a lack of compassion. I think the pastor's emphasis on hope uh, and seeing people do things for each other is really, is really a high point. But because the disease has a tendency to operate on, on the middle class and the poor, what you begin to hear as a national conversation is opening the economy, you know, opening the economy. And opening the economy has a benefit to wealthy individuals who have leveraged themselves into a, a position to, to gain from that economy. But the poor also depend on the economy and the functionality of an economy to deliver essential services. Uh, were this a different kind of disease, uh, we may have a longer conversation about what's in the best interest of public health. Uh, but because it's the kind of disease that it is, we're seeing an emphasis upon the economy and the restart of the economy, at least among our current leadership. Uh, and that, that to me is not a, a conversation that, that's concluded yet. I think this is a national conversation uh, it happens in the context of an election, uh, and we'll have choices to make about how our uh, public officials have responded to the crisis at hand. You know, character is part of destiny, right? And what we're looking for is leaders with character. Uh, I hear the pastor say, you know, his, his place is with his people, and, and this is one of the hardest things to do is to try to, to exercise social separations and social distancing when you've got people out there who are in dire need. Uh, we as leaders have got to find a way to be effective in our response to the, to the poor and to the suffering, uh, and that we not treat it, um, try to treat those, those cir- circumstances behind the gate. You know, we've got to open the gate and get out and, and, and start to engage one of the last places and maybe the best places we can engage is at the ballot box. You know, we choose our leaders that pursue the remedies that are important to our society uh, to, that, that deliver upon the insecurities that we have. And I'm sorry for being preachy about this, but I feel strongly about it, that Kent, uh, the pastor, uh, Walton, myself, you know, we have a responsibility. We were elected to lead in a time of crisis. And, and, you know, and I pray to God that our conduct uh, is such that we, we deliver on that promise. Very beautifully said. And Kent, did you want to say something? Yeah, I think there's one thing that um, Bill is always very eloquent, um, does a tremendous job. I'm, I just tend to be a little more practical. There are a couple things that I've learned from this that I think is important that our legislature and that our community and the criminal justice community as a whole understands. And this is really, this whole COVID-19 to me has shown a spotlight on a tremendous deficiency that we have. We basically have jail or we have OR release and we have prison or we have free. There are no intermediate steps. For example, there is not house arrest. There aren't ankle monitors. There aren't these other steps that are the intermediate step between being in jail or being completely free. Somebody's either in prison and locked up, you know, right behind me or they're in their house. There aren't halfway houses, there aren't these intermediate steps. And that's something that we in Arizona sorely lack. To me, this really emphasizes this because if in fact we had those intermediate steps, it'd be much easier to clear, clear a jail. 
um, to accomplish a lot of what the Reverend was asking for. You know, release people from, from DOC if they're not dangerous, put them in a halfway house so that maybe they're not going straight back in the home, but there is an intermediate step. In Arizona, that doesn't exist. And this crisis, in my opinion, has really shown where we are lacking. And my hope is coming forward that we'll appreciate that and really make a concerted effort to address those gaps. I do hope so. Uh, do you see steps being taken toward those, I would call it advancements from where we are now, um, but I, I do think that they are you know, basic human rights personally. But in this, in this case, I'll call them advancements. Hopefully they're around the corner and hopefully that's one positive thing that could come from this is criminal justice reform and maybe those inter intermediary, I guess, houses that you just spoke of. I think there has been a slow movement in that direction. Uh, I'm hoping that this really highlights the importance there. I can tell you most of the prosecutors, most of the judges, we want more options. Um, you know, Bill started off saying it, and I could not agree with him more. We really want to do what's right. We want justice. We look at it as a whole. We realize that that there are Somebody may need more than just being at home, but they really don't need to be locked up behind bars and caged effectively like an animal. Or there needs to be a transition when people are locked up and they have all of these restrictions. You know, DOC does the, has a study that they performed where a person in the Arizona Department of Corrections makes something like 12,000 decisions a day, um, but you and I make almost 40,000 decisions a day. So to transition to make three or four times as decisions, and it's simple, what are you going to wear today? What are you going to eat? Are you going to stand up and go left, go right? Or what way are you going to drive to work? Just those little decisions. But we do nothing to reintroduce and to bridge that gap. Instead, we just throw people right back out. And I think that's part of the concern that, for example, our governor has, that he's afraid that, look, if we take people that aren't ready and just put them back in society in this craziness without the appropriate tools in place to make them successful, are we doing them a service or are we doing our community a service? And we have nothing to transition. Uh, that has been one of my frustrations from, from the get-go. Part of the reason I ran for this office is to try and work on, on fixing some of these sort of inherent issues. But uh, to me, I think this puts a spotlight on. So, yes, the answer to your question, I, I think there is going to be more push. I think there's going to be more people realizing that uh, I wish I could tell you this is a one-off. I don't think it is. I, I think we're going to be in a very similar situation probably this fall where, you know, some of it's going to come back and we need to be prepared with better answers than we have right now, because we are, as Bill said, we are challenged to lead at this time. Um, and part of it is seeing what we do poorly and coming up with solutions to fix those problems. Well, thank you for that. Uh, this has been wonderful. And I just, I can't believe we were able to do part one and now part two. And it's just been such a joy for us because I'm not sure about you, Valina, but I felt so tired of just staying home in lockdown and feeling useless. So I thought I could make myself useful in some way, even if it's small. And I, I hopefully this, this podcast episode is one of many steps to get the public engaged and informed about what's going on so that they're aware of how hard you all are working to, to help with this situation. So I'm not sure if you have any closing remarks, Valina, but go ahead if you do. Uh, well, I just wanted to... Um toss it to Pastor Walton in case he had any final statement that he wanted to make. I didn't know if we cut you off before you were able to do that. That's no problem. Uh, again, thank you so much for having me and all of us. Uh, this has been a powerful conversation. Hopefully um, out of this, someone has uh, learned something, but most importantly, what I want us to take away from this is that this disease will not beat us. 
Uh, there is hope. There is uh, light at the end of the tunnel, as it were. And uh, if we work together, if we um, if we shelter in place, if we stay at home, we can uh, defeat this disease. But more importantly, we can create a new normal and come out of this better than we were before. I share that hope with you. Thank you so much. Thank you for the uplifting message. And thank you all of you for your insights and your work uh, and everything you are doing every single day. Uh, we truly, truly appreciate it. And we're glad to just be able to highlight it and share it with others. Yes. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you so much. much.